Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills that you need to take your career to the next level. We do this by learning directly from top industry leaders. I am your host, Felipe Flores, and today I'll be speaking with Kristen Sosolsky who is the Data Visualization Professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Her recently released book is called Data Visualization Made Simple, Insights into Becoming Visual. Kristen and I talk about data visualizations, communication and presentation styles, storytelling. She tells us about what she covers in her book, in her research, in her consulting, and also about her upcoming online course on data visualization. And I'll include the link on the show notes. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. And today I'm speaking with Kristen Sosolsky. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Felipe? Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks so much for making the time. I've been very excited to speak with you, and I've been looking forward to this. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. It's really my pleasure. So at the beginning, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a, a bit of an overview of your professional journey to date and how you got to where you are. Okay. So my life has gone completely full circle. So I started my undergraduate career NYU Stern School of Business. I was an information systems major. I was learning how to code for the first time in a serious way during the what we call the Web 1.0 era. And today I am a professor in the very same school in the very same department teaching coding <laughs> and data visualization. So that's a short, short summary. But in between, obviously, I went to grad school. Grad school is really where I discovered and a passion for two things. One is this area called learning science. So really concerned about how to communicate and ensure that students are learning and how to design instruction in, in a proper way. In parallel, I discovered this area of data visualization, which is all about how to communicate the insights that you find from data in a really clear and crisp way to diverse audiences. And so those two fields really kind of intersected for me. And I ended up NYU Stern School of Business leading a lab called our Learning Science Lab, where we design online courses and instruction together with our faculty and also as a professor there teaching data visualization and R. So that's a quick summary of my journey. And for the two main areas that you love and that you're passionate about, how did they first grab your attention? You know, I love technology. And I was always rebuilding computers and like breaking my dad's computer and just finding ways to understand it better to relate to technology and explore it. And I found a way to use technology to help students learn. And that was like amazing. So not only about teaching students how to use technology. So I, um, for many, many years at Columbia University, I taught actually K through 12 teachers who were in their school of education, had a program in Java and other programming languages, but also how to understand how technology can be used to help others learn, learn basics of mathematics, to provide simulations of experiences that they would not otherwise be able to experience, and to create like immersive learning environments where space and place didn't make such so much of a difference. And today with online learning, that's so prevalent. But back when I started, and I would say this would be around like the, the late 90s, it was still wow. a pretty new area. And what were some of the challenges that you had back then? And how was it going into an area or this area back then? 
Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many challenges, right? So we'd want to create really immersive learning environments and have students watch videos and annotate them and deconstruct them and frame by frame and, and to do all this stuff with like kind of really bad bandwidth. Google wasn't around really yet. And the learning management systems and the platforms available were pretty limited at the time. And so we had to create everything from scratch. So we were using like JSP and Perl and other kind of server side technologies to actually capture student data store it in a database and then retrieve it for when we needed it. And so we had to kind of create everything from scratch. Now with like course management systems, learning management systems, a lot of these things have been made a lot easier. So now we can focus much more on the design of the pedagogy and the education within the digital space. That's so interesting. I'll definitely be asking you more about that, but I also wanted to ask you in terms of the visualization side, how did your journey start on that side? Like I mentioned, it started in grad school. And so I was working on a project with a film professor. He kind of, you know, tasked me with this challenge. And the challenge was, is it possible for us to create a digital space to have students deconstruct a film scene? And I was like, why do they need to do that? And he's like, well, if we can slow down film and allow students to analyze a scene frame by frame, we can actually explore those elements of film that lead to suspense or create suspense. So how close the camera is to the subject or how far away, what's the angle of the camera, those types of things. And he was very set on stripping away the whole narrative and dramatic content from it. So taking away the script and the characters, but really just looking at the structural elements, literally about the camera and the camera movement. What we did is we created this environment called the deconstructor, and we allowed students to deconstruct a scene shot by shot. They did this all online and actually visualize a scene just by looking at the various structural elements of a particular film scene. And this really blew me away because we were able to literally visualize art. And it was just something that, you know, totally changed the way that I thought about data, data collection, how we investigate and study different media. And to be able to visualize it was so, so, so powerful. And so that's really how I started. That's incredible because I never would have thought of such an application of data in film. I can totally see how that would have opened your eyes to the potential and the possibilities of what data and visualization could do. Absolutely. Again, I was always working with technology and, and data. And so it just really became a medium in which I used to kind of express everything that I was working on. And then from there, did you go into research and visualization or a different type of work? What was the, the next step after the film project in grad school? So when you're kind of an academic, the lines are kind of, you don't always take straight paths. And so my yes. path was that right after finishing grad school, I became a professor right away. And so I began teaching and it became part of my teaching and my practice and, and my consulting work and everything that I was doing. And so, and that took many years. It didn't just happen overnight. Like uh, just recently, I published a book on data visualization. So it took me many, many years to get to the point to establish my own data visualization practice and be able to educate others more broadly, like through a book. And I'm also offering a new online course that's open to everybody in the world. So it's been quite a journey. And how did you come to develop your own views on data visualization and I guess your own style and practice? One of the things that I may mention later again is that really influences my work is simplicity. And simplicity plus this idea of how we learn and how we retain information. And that comes from the cognitive psychology and learning science. And so bringing those two principles together really informs on how I design my own data graphics for an audience. 
always thinking about specifically like what's the level of prior knowledge of the audience? Am I showing them a graph that they can interpret? So for instance, let's say I was not speaking to a room of statisticians and I started showing box plots and histograms. I mean, that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. So again, thinking about the prior knowledge of the audience, how much they already know about the subject, and then thinking about how can I make sure they walk away and remember what I've just told them? And so how do you do that? You have to think about, well, we know that basically we forget 50% of what we learned within one hour of learning it, unless we continuously put it into practice, right? What could you do in that, in that time that you have with the audience? And this is, goes much beyond data visualization, but really about how you use data visualization for data presentation together and what you do as a speaker, as a deliverer, and how that data graphic supports what you're saying. So you have to think about how you engage your audience. Do you have them look at the graphic and maybe ask them a question about it rather than just tell them like the answer and the takeaway and hope they remember? And so there's lots of strategies you can employ, and I can go on and on about this, but those simplicity and fundamentally how we process and remember information, those are the two things that really inform my own lens of data visualization. I get so many questions from listeners about this topic. They're so interested in how they can best present their work, their findings, how they can best engage an audience and have that empathetic communication that is sort of what I'm thinking in terms of what you were saying by thinking about the other person, putting yourself in their shoes, understanding their their previous knowledge and where they're coming from. And mm -hmm. then it sounds like you focus on making the presentation very engaging by getting people to maybe give feedback or answer questions. And then there's the visualization or data presentation component. So can, could you walk me through some of the things that you look for in this presentation scheme, maybe in those different areas? Sure. How I look at it is I think that anybody who gives a data presentation needs to have some experience in teaching and some empathy, like you said, for the audience and using, this is the quote that I say all the time, it's my quote, but don't make your audience work too hard. That is so yes. essential. So thinking yes. about how what you show on the screen can be super clear, can be readable. Let's not use font that's 12-point font that you can't see in the back of the room. And we all know this, but it continuously happens. Let's yes. make sure that we don't set our text at an angle, that we all text should be read horizontally, not vertically. These simple things about how we, just simple readability principles, um, can go a far away. Second, you want to make sure you're not presenting too much information, right? So we always hear about like cognitive overload and information overload. But what does that really mean? Don't show three charts at once. And then only speak to one of them. We see that a lot in presentations where time's going fast and I got to skip through this chart or I show a chart that I just don't even speak to. I kind of vaguely mention a concept that might be shown in the chart, but I don't tell you what the data axes mean or what the encodings, like the lines or the bubbles or the dots. I'll tell you what yes. those need. And imagine if you're using color, those colors then need to be explained, which brings me to the next point, which is um, a lot of times we overuse color, higher rainbow. And when we do that, the audience isn't sure what to look at because it's almost yes. like everything is highlighted. So nothing stands out. So a tip is just, you know, if you want a data point to stand out, like if you're showing a line chart and you want that last data point to show out, show up and you want to annotate it with the value of that last data point, make that in a different color or bold, but don't make everything bold in a different color. And this is what we call like a pre-attentive attribute. So immediately, as I look at a graph, I know my eye focuses on that information that's different. So, so important. These are just a few tips. Again, I can go on. 
Yes, this is fantastic because I've definitely made all of those mistakes that you just mentioned. And in the sense that in preparing uh, presentations, sometimes there's been a lot of analysis done that needs to be presented, as you say, in a simple manner, in a concise way. And I found myself putting together slides and almost getting carried away and lost in the moment. And then by the time I realized, I've jam-packed a slide with a bunch of charts, a bunch of information, lots of different colors that I have to go, oh, I need to redo this. These are um, great tips. And how do you help people navigate through these challenges? Look, what you do today will be very different tomorrow. And as we learn and develop our visualization practice, we get better. And that's like really something that I like to emphasize. At the beginning of my course or as you're as you're studying this, you will be at a certain level, whatever that level is. And then the next day or the next week, as you become sensitive and develop your own aesthetics and your also your own ability to critique and provide feedback on other data graphics, that's how you begin to improve your practice. And so what I do is I provide students with a language to critique. So now I don't just say that looks ugly, that looks good. Let's talk about specifically what's wrong with it. Okay, this has, you know, too much chart jump. You might have heard that before. So that's a, a term that Edward Tufte invented. But this is where you, you're using too much non-data elements like grid lines or too many tick marks or the frame around the graphic, what we call the non-data elements. When there's too much non-data elements there, the data is not revealing itself as much as it could. There's other information there that's not necessary. But there's 10 of these principles. I mentioned chart, chart jump. Another one is chart format. Is your chart designed for the medium? So if you're designing a chart for the screen that's going to be projected versus a website versus a printed report, those are all different formats and you need to design for that. So recognizing that, oh, wow, you can always tell when someone just kind of took a screenshot of a graphic that someone else created for a different reason. Maybe it was for a website and they throw it in a PowerPoint and you can't read it because it was meant to be zoomed in on. So there, again, there's 10 of these principles. Uh, we talk about color and the appropriate use of color, the cultural meanings of color, and uh, recognizing that one in every 10 males have some form of co color blindness. And so we want to make sure that the colors that we use, we check for contrast. And a simple tip for that is print it in grayscale. And if you can see the differences in color, then you know that you're good. You can see some contrast. And again, there is more. One is uh, data density. So to make sure that you're showing the data at the right level. If you have a scatter plot and you really can't see any patterns because you have too many data points, think about how you can filter that as just an example. So sometimes our data can actually obscure what it is that we want to see. And we might be using an inappropriate chart type. So like a bubble map, you know what a bubble map is where you have the bubbles layering over each other. And it's basically yeah. like a scatter plot with the point size by some value like population or sales or something. And in that case, what happens is the bubbles overlay and obscure other data points. And we don't want that to happen. So developing this type of internalizing, I should say, this checklist of 10 design principles is really a great way to make sure that you avoid a lot of the pitfalls when it comes to the design of the graphics. And then there's a, there's a whole checklist that I put together when you're actually presenting it, what things you should think about. Everything from like, have a clicker, never show like a live animated display, always record it ahead of time, things like that. So much of the listeners for this podcast, they're people working in data, a lot of the majority of them data scientists, and it's people that would 
be doing data visualizations day in, day out, either as part of their analysis or to present it and communicate to an audience. And I think that what a lot of data scientists struggle with, and I'm putting myself definitely in that in that category, is to see what is the structure around data visualization? What is a structure that would help me or us know that we're getting better mm -hmm. at it. Mm -hmm. And because generally it, it's seen from the outside, it's seen as such a hazy topic. Maybe people think, especially when put together with storytelling and presentation, it becomes sort of even a softer skill than before. And that might be quite confusing for people. So I really like the fact that you've put this structure around it to say, here's some checklists, here's some steps, and this is how you know that you're getting better and you can measure that progress. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then don't forget that part of this is, again, my emphasis is about developing your practice. And so the subtitle of my book is like insights into becoming visual. So you're not just going to be visual. You're not just going to be a visualization designer and that's it. It's ongoing. It's a lifelong journey because that's how I think about education and learning. Like We're always getting better and there's always going to be new ways to look at information and to view it. But one way that you can really accelerate this is by sharing your work and showing it to others. So if I were to develop a graph and I have a presentation tomorrow and Felipe, I showed it to you. I said, what do you think the key insight is here? And then you would share with me what you thought. And if that was in line with what I thought, I'd feel pretty confident going into that presentation. Otherwise, I might redesign it. And then showing it to more than one person is always helpful. So when I, I kind of talk about visualization as building this extra 20% into your work. And the analogy I always use is, do you know the area of like quality assurance? When you build software, you always have some testing that happens. A lot of times, we're always up until a deadline and that testing never happens. I always feel that visualization kind of has that place in kind of the, the data analysis and presentation process as well. It's like that extra 20% that sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't, sometimes it's a little incomplete and shady. And so yeah. as much as you can, building that in and building time in for that and sharing your work, by sharing your work, you're kind of building a community around your work, getting input, and that's only going to help you as a data scientist and as a presenter and as a leader in the area of, you know, say analytics and data science going to be better. So that is so true. This is such an important part of data science, such an important component. Yeah, one that I think you're absolutely right. It does need more focus. And then that's, it does need to be included earlier in the timeline to get a, a better, better outcome. And you said that you both teach and consult. Tell me a bit about the consulting work. What type of uh, companies and challenges do you see on that side? There's lots of challenges, right? And so you're either faced with, you know, like a few individuals in an organization that are looking to kind of improve their practice or add visualization as part of their practice. And so that's something I see a lot. Or you see a large group of individuals within an organization that need training in this area and that have come together kind of to build their practice. And that's what I think is absolutely wonderful. So a lot of the work I do is actually in the training of managers and leaders in building their data visualization practice. And then as kind of a byproduct of that, we actually talk about their data practice because they soon find out that a lot of times they don't have the data that they need to communicate the types of insights that they're looking for. And so sometimes it's a little backwards because you're always thinking about what it is that you want to communicate out. And then when you deconstruct that, you'll, you'll notice that you might not have all those data points that you need. 
And I think that at least from what I've seen is that the assumption is that the data is always there. Mm -hmm. People think that if we have a need to show something, generally the assumption is that the data will be there and that it will be easy to visualize. Two huge assumptions. So as you're helping the managers set up their data visualization practices, what does their journey look like? It's around first ensuring that the organization has a data practice that allows appropriate access to the information that folks need to do their jobs, to make decisions. And so we kind of make sure that that's in place. Visualization is one way to kind of democratize access to insights. So a rent to analysis, but in a way that's accessible to the appropriate people within an organization. Second thing is like kind of creating a plan of action, right? So it's great if one person has the best reports that are, you know, visualized and really communicate these things. But if no one else is doing that, you're not really having an organization practice around visualization, around simple yet effective communication around your business. So creating a plan of action is certainly the next step. And then building this culture of use, right? And so from leadership throughout the organization, everyone has to kind of lead by example. I mean, that's just obvious that this is something that is used throughout the organization, whether it be how managers manage their business units and the use of different dashboards and analytics and data that impact and influence decision making. So if data isn't used to make decisions in an organization, the visualization is not going to be much help. We know that, you know, data organizations are said to be much more productive organizations. So there's this balance between the experts and those that are using intuition and gut to make decisions and also mixing that with informed data-driven insights. And that's where I see data visualization as such a key component as you're trying to create a data-driven organization and take people on the journey in order to get them to a point that they're empowered to make their own decisions around business, even though they might not be data people. So allowing people to have direct access to the data, to proper visualizations that will tell them whether they're getting better at their job or not and use that information to make decisions. People from all varied backgrounds, that's where I see data visualization as a, such a key component in that journey around creating a data-driven organization. What do you think? I absolutely agree. Having access to the information and being able to understand it and to take action at the appropriate levels is empowering. As we take a closer look at the data, we may not have some of the data that we need, but this is that opportunity to, that we're actually using the data that we have to make decisions and ask new and more interesting and deeper questions. And that's why sometimes we think we don't have the data that we need. We do for a certain level, but now we've kind of exhausted that. We want to know more about our customers. And that driving inquiry is part of this data-driven culture. So we actually want to get to the point where we don't have the data that we have. And we have interesting questions that we want to pursue about our business. That's how we innovate and we learn. Definitely. And I have to say, I read your book. I really enjoyed it. I found it that it was very practical advice that could be put to use straight away and that it was for people that are either just starting in data visualization or people that have been working in data for a long time. I found that anyone in that spectrum could get value from your book. So I wanted to ask you, what were your aims in writing it first? So my objective with writing my book was that I was using six or seven other great books on data visualization as part of my class, as part of my training workshops that I do for businesses. And that was a lot. Those are a lot of different materials and because it was a lot of different perspectives. And the one thing that was missing from everything was the case studies, the interviews with real practitioners that describe how they use visualization as part of their practice. 
And as I become still a journey for me, as I become, you know, like a better teacher and a better businesswoman and, and all of that, what I've realized is that we need to make the business case for why data visualization is very important. And it's not just a skill, like a technical skill, but it's a leadership skill. And through that, I was able to interview leaders and people who work in data science, in, in startups, in healthcare, in education to describe how they use it in their practice. And that was something that was really missing. So I have those stories and I have examples of, of people in their work. And so that was one really, really big motivator for me. The second one was that I teach a lot of different audiences. And you know, you know how I feel about reaching my audience. So I wanted to make sure that it would be good for anyone like data wonks, people that really know their data really well, but maybe aren't great designers yet. That's an area where they need to improve. Or quite the opposite, where you might have, you know, graphic designers that want to get into the data space. So I have a whole chapter on data and thinking about the different data formats that you need for visualization and some basic principles for, you know, starting with a data set and, and understanding understanding it by looking at the data dictionary and going from there. That's right. And I really like the case studies and the interviews. They're there from chapter one, from essentially getting people to think about becoming visual. There's people's points of view there. There's the interviews. You walk through the different tools that people can use or that people are using in the field today and how they're using it. And then you, yes, obviously you go into the, the graphics and the data. As you were writing the book, did you come across any surprises? Was there anything that surprised you that came to you during the, the process of writing the book? A couple things. And in my desire for simplicity, you know, I designed some different ways to simplify the process. So I would describe it through the chapter and have some checklists at the end. And then when I was writing the last chapter nine, because again, it had to be simple. So I wanted to be under 10 chapters. And so chapter nine was called The End. And I came up with two additional ways to kind of help someone include visualization in their practice. Uh, one is I came up with a set of archetypes. So these are a set of pre-made basic charts and graphs that someone can go to the website and download, but also see how those are presented in, in an abstract way in the book and in printed form. So then they can model that. So they can say, okay, what should like generally, what should like a stack area chart look like from a design perspective based on the principles discussed in the book? And so they would already have a template. Wouldn't this be great if you were a manager and training your employees and just say, okay, look at these examples for what I'm expecting for this type of basic chart. That makes the communication between like manager and employees so simple because you now have an example and I could put a little bookmark in the book. The second thing I did was um, come up with what I call these cognitive shortcuts, which are a couple ways to remember some basic, basic principles. And one of them is called the dolphin and the rose, which is a famous example where you're looking at a picture of a rose and all of a sudden someone tells you there's a dolphin inside that picture of a rose. And you're like, what? And it's just to remind you that you never want your chart or graph to look to be the dolphin in the rose, to have have information that can't be seen. And it's just a way to kind of remember it very, very quickly. And then I have another example called the big red bubble. And the big red bubble is based on the work of the late Hans Rosling, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who really popularized interactive and animated data graphics. And a famous presentation he gives, he talks about fertility rate and population and length of life for every nation in the world. And in doing this, he mentions the big red bubble is China. Everybody always remembers with 100% accuracy when I asked them at the end of the presentation, what was the big red bubble? And everybody's like, oh, it's China. How does the audience know that? Because he told them. 
And it's a reminder to use your voice and explain your encodings to your audience. And so I have a few more that you can read about in the book, but those were things that I felt like, wow, these are technique, really quick ways to remember some, some basic principles that might not, you might not have that checklist handy, but these are things that you should really, really just remember. And how do you split your time at the moment between teaching and writing and consulting? You must be running off your feet. What does your week look like? I've always kind of overextended myself. And the thing when you're an academic, you really just love your work. And like, I love what I do. Like, I'm super privileged to be working in a business school where I can pursue my passion for learning science at the same time to teach a variety of students and through consulting managers and the like um, about my practice of data visualization and business analytics. And so I just feel that this is just kind of part what I do. I mean, oddly, I don't think about it as work so much. It's just kind of what I do. For many people, that's the dream, seeing your or being able to do what you love on a full-time basis and for it to not seem like work. Yeah, I mean, of course, there are those days. It's fantastic. So. And before you were, I guess, like not part of the business school at NYU, is that right? Were you in a different different part? I was in a different part. And so when I started NYU, I started at their School of Professional Studies to lead their online efforts. And so I came in as a faculty member teaching in digital media, actually, in addition, as the academic director of their online programs for undergraduates. And so that was a really exciting experience. It was a way to kind of offer online education to anyone in the world who wanted an undergraduate degree at NYU. So that was a really special experience. And we worked with lots of great students. And that was way to literally put in my, you know, learning science background into practice in the creation of these, you know, digital learning experiences in anything from the humanities to um, mathematics. And so it was definitely a great challenge, an experience I really learned from. Wow. And because that involves so many of the similar aspects as data visualization in terms of having to present information, getting people to understand it and digest it, having the audience, or in this case, the students, remember that and carry that knowledge with them going forward. And what were some of the things that you learned during that time? So one of the big things you have to think about with online education is it's not just the presentation of information. You really have to have evidence that students have learned something. So you have to, just like when you're presenting to an audience, you can assume that they've walked away with your key takeaway, but you really don't know unless you ask them or they tell you. And what better way to know that is to actually create opportunities to get that kind of feedback. In a learning and literally a learning experience like an online course, you have to build in those points of interaction and feedback so you have that evidence. I always talk about the idea that data graphics can be used as evidence. So now I can have an aggregation of how students performed on a particular quiz or some type of assessment and be able to look at that, say, like across programs or across courses as being a program director. That kind of information is super, super critical. And there's this new area. It's actually not a new area, but it's become very popular called learning analytics. And this is about developing data metrics to understand how students are learning. And it's all about from an educational point of view, not how many times they clicked on a video, but did they go from the video to the assignment to back to the video because they needed to review something as an example. So understanding the students' pathways through courses, how they approach their learning in those spaces. So there's so many possibilities. And I just mentioned this because this is something that's relatively new. And I wish I could have included a lot of that in my experience back in 2005 when I was working at NYU online. What was it called? 
such a, obviously a growing area, but such an important area. But what I hadn't thought about before speaking with you is the connection between that area and data visualization and all those similarities. Yeah, really, really interesting. Going back to data visualization, what do you think are the current challenges in the space? I think that there's a big challenge at Live is that there's a lot of great software out there to visualize data. And there's a certain population of the world that knows how to code and to visualize data as well. And I think that's a really unique skill set. So I think there needs to be like much more education and training on how best to visualize data. So at the highest level, you're visualizing data using Python and R or JavaScript, right? So you're using coding languages and you have to reference your columns and rows in certain ways and everything is much more abstract. You're not pointing and clicking. And there's definitely a need for people to actually be able to create the physical visualization, but then also to know what it means. And I think there's a lot of skills. And I think you mentioned this before. I mean, are you, you have to be a storyteller, you have to be a graphic designer, you have to be a coder. And I think there's a huge pressure placed on data scientists to be all these things and to be good at all of them. And I think that's the real challenge. And with visualization, it kind of really encompasses all of them. So if you know how to visualize data and to tell stories and you know what your data means in the real world, I think that you're ahead of the game there. But I think that combination of skills is quite hard to come by in the market today. So if you have those skills, I think you have a real, real leg up. And what are your views on data visualization tools? So I categorize DataViz tools in four different categories. So first are your basic productivity tools. These are things that pretty much everybody has access to some degree, right? So some form of Microsoft Excel or spreadsheeting software, right? That allow you to visualize tables of data. The second tool in this space is, you know, Google Charts, right? So this is free for a lot of folks to visualize data and you can create web-based displays. So I categorize these as like basic productivity applications. And as you move up the ladder, like the next set of tools are like these more specific data visualization tools like Tableau or ArcGIS or Gephi. These are tools that are designed specifically for the visualization of data. Where Excel, you could argue, is really meant for more spreadsheet analysis, where Tableau is all around the visualization of data. They do have some you know, data analytics components, but primarily the main focus are the encodings of data through graphics. Then you have your third category of tools, which are what I call these business intelligence tools. These are those tools that allow you to create dashboards that tell you what's happening now. Dashboards are usually like web-based displays on your computer that are reading data from a source that's not on your computer that tell you what's happening within your business at any one moment in time. We look at dashboards a lot when we're evaluating our, our social media strategies and the effectiveness of marketing campaigns. So these might be just some common ones that we're all familiar with. And then you have your fourth level of data visualization tools, which are your programming languages. So when you want to create some robust data-driven web-based displays that are kind of impossible with maybe some tools like Tableau, given some other constraints, or the type of visualization you want to create, like a network diagram, usually you could use something like JavaScript to create that, which takes an understanding of how to how to write JavaScript, right? Or and to use the various .js libraries for this. There's also like Python um, has some great libraries for visualization, as well as R. I'm a big R coder. So using ggplot and to um, create, you know, shiny apps or other types of displays that are great for data scientists and exploratory analysis, like correlation matrices and like. And what are your views on the interactability the dashboards can have for users to play play around with? 
I call that user-driven storytelling. And so you need to design for that kind of experience. So if you are designing a dashboard and you put drop-down menus and input fields for the audience to enter in various values that change the output of the display, you have to plan for that. And you have to anticipate and user test and understand how one may be using your interface to learn more about the data and explore it. And so again, that's all about kind of being thoughtful, understanding various user pathways and use cases. And again, this puts immense pressure on, you know, data scientists that might be responsible for doing this. Now they they have to test out the usability of these things because now it's, it's much more than not just interpreting a data graphic, but now interacting with it. So we have to think about how different pathways, how someone drills down in a visualization, how they can come back up, how they can go right or left or down or up, all these different things. Yeah, that's right. And do you have any recommendations on how to create those pathways in the first place? Of course, you can ask people what they want with dashboards. And I always talk about people who are tasked with creating dashboards in their organization. I say, oh, ask, ask, you know, ask the stakeholders what they want to see. And then show them some examples of that before you build it. And say, this is what you want to see. How would you use this? And really understand how they would use the information. And, and I bet 50% of the time, it's not what they really want. And I always think that this is kind of using, building, you know, small prototypes is really the way to get to an understanding of what like a stakeholder will want with a dashboard. It's really hard to talk about these things in the abstract. Sometimes we think we'll need the data. And imagine if you could, like, let's beta test this for a month. Every day I will give you a report. It will be in a paper form this time of the information you need. I just want to see how you'd use that. And so it takes some time and care, but ultimately we want to give people the information that they need and the way they want to receive it. And that doesn't just happen by somebody saying, oh, these are the fields I want. It's a much more involved process. So true. And I love that you said around creating small prototypes and having those iterations where you're working essentially with your stakeholders to uncover what's going to help them the most through that interaction process, as in like you as a designer or as a data scientist interacting with the stakeholder, that then the right solution is co-created in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because why spend all this time creating something that no one is going to use, right? And I think your value as a, as a data science in an organization is to create value and to create like efficiencies and give people the information that they need to help grow your business and make better decisions, right? And so I feel like data scientists are really like so important in this role and have to think about it as a way to really give back to their stakeholders rather than just kind of like complete the project and it's done. They want the project to be successful. This is one way, this is one pathway. Definitely having that, that communication through the project is key. And tell me, how would you like data visualization as a field? How would you like it to evolve over time? How would you like it to change? Or what would be your vision on how you would like it to be in the future? I think it should still be easier. I think it's still too hard. It's very, very easy to make common mistakes with data graphics to this day. I think that the software can still be smarter and help us avoid some of these mistakes. We need to not have to have, you know, like six or seven different solutions available. Because right now, if I want to create like a network diagram, I have to use one piece of software. If I want to create a correlation matrix, I'm using R. If I want to, you know, create a beautiful map of the US, I can do that in Tableau. But I still have to have expertise in too many software packages still these days. I'd also like to see much more traction on how we use virtual reality together with data visualization. I've seen a lot of really impressive demos, but I'm still not convinced of what the value is yet 
I'm yet to be persuaded and I want to be. I really want to be. And so I feel like I keep asking questions that just seem too hard to be answered, but I'm not seeing the exact value yet, but I'm excited to. Yeah, I love both of those points, uh, definitely. But it was so interesting to hear about having your views on having software assist people to create better data visualizations. That's really interesting. I assume that part of the idea there is to put the knowledge around data visualization and checklists and things like that, put that knowledge into the software to assist the people creating it to make better data visualizations. Is that along the lines of, of what you're thinking? I think that could be fabulous. And then, you know, that's happening to some extent, you know, of course, but ways in which it can just be easier and you can avoid some of the common pitfalls, you know, and better like kind of like starter examples that are out there would be, I think, super helpful. A lot of things that I struggle with in the field is showing the business value. And a lot of the examples that are used in just like common software aren't really business examples. Like 3D, I don't really see a lot of great business examples yet. So looking for those are the things that like I'm much very curious around. And tell me, what do you think are some common mistakes that people make when they're getting into the field, getting into data visualization or wanting to improve their capabilities around this area? What would be some things to avoid or some common mistakes that people should try to bypass? So I'd say like from a technical point of view, I mean, some common mistakes are I see people just starting out as they just like overuse color way too much. They don't necessarily know how to size their graphics. So they might have like all this white space on their PowerPoint presentation. Their graph's really small. PowerPoint slides are really cheap. It doesn't cost you any more money to like use another slide or make the graphic bigger. So definitely like use all the real estate that you can. It's not, you know, it doesn't make it more like efficient arrangement of graphics doesn't necessarily mean effective interpretation of those graphics. So that's one thing that I see like quite a lot. Another thing is like showing a data graphic that doesn't say anything. There's no insight there. And it just shows the information, but, and it might be showing some like historical information, but I'm not sure why I'm looking at it or what I should take away from it. And that's a common mistake. And that, and that's part of, I think, our journey. Like we've all been there. We visualize data doesn't say anything. So we don't need to show it then. We can just keep working on our line of inquiry and having that patience. Sometimes we think just because we create it, we have to use it. And this is something I learned in grad school when I was writing my dissertation. I had to throw out like a couple chapters. Like how horrific is that? But being able to let go of your work and say, this doesn't need to be included in this piece. It's irrelevant. Or I already explored that journey and it didn't take me anywhere. I have evidence that I explored that journey or explored that question, but it's not relevant. And so sometimes letting go is something hard for novices. So true. I see that as a mistake quite often that people, exactly as you said, people feel that if they did the work, it has to be shown and they seem to present their work in the same workflow as how they did the work (laughs) instead of thinking of how can I rejig this, show the insights only and have more, um, pack more punch into the presentation. Yeah. And I think, you know, what could play a big role in that is one thing to tell someone that they did that, but I I think like mentorship and leadership, right? So in the profession of teaching, people always say, oh, you teach like you've been taught, right? But if you think about it, like you become a manager and a leader, maybe because you're modeling those that have, you know, led you. And so it's really important for leaders out there to kind of help support growing, emerging data scientists these days in developing those important skills and just pointing it out and then showing them how, you know, some alternative I really do believe a lot in professional development and growing, growing teams in your staff. It's one of the most important things you can do. And how do you do that side? What does your professional development look like for you personally or at your work? 
So I, um, I guess improve my practices, you know, I just I emerge myself in it. And so even as I look back at my work from just a few months ago, like I can begin to critique it and find ways to improve it. And so I look a lot backwards to see kind of how far that I have come and those things that, you know, I still need to grow. And what I do is I kind of search for these, identify these problems, and I try to find ways to then explain it and show and teach others around it. Like if I'm struggling with a data problem, I try to make that a teaching moment or something that then I include as again, in my repertoire of practice. So I can kind of share my struggles, but to share my struggles, I have to have actually found a solution that works that takes some time. But that's really how um, my practice has emerged. That is, I really like that that is application led, as in you're coming across problems and thinking, how can I solve this today? And then learning from that. But then in the future, looking back and saying, knowing that what I know now, how could I have solved that differently? And having that continual improvement, that is fantastic. No, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. I only have two last questions for you. One of them is, what is a piece of advice or a takeaway that you would like to leave the listeners with? One piece of advice that I would like to leave listeners with is anytime you're working with data, really understand and know what your data means in the real world. And when it comes to visualization, we are always visualizing some type of phenomena that existed in the real world. And we are taking that and analyzing it and encoding into shapes and colors. But please, please, please take the time to really understand what your data means in the real world. It will help you later on in the critique process and examining the output and understanding where flaws may have happened because of the software, because you pressed the wrong button or what have you. So, so important. Love it. And the last one is, where can people find you online? You can find me at Twitter. My last name, Sosolsky, S-O-S-U-L-S-K-I. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Kristen.Sosolsky. And you can also feel free to reach out and email me, ks123 at nyu.edu. Amazing. And definitely, I encourage everyone to check out Data Visualization Made Simple. It is a fantastic resource. Kristen, thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Thanks for sharing all your knowledge and your insights and your journey with all of us. Oh my gosh, Felipe, this is really my pleasure. This is so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y. So F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.